famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gehar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possession of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with, the, with earth all the, the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gehar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of the water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring of water, the herdsmen of Gehar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well. And they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitnan. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So, it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the, land, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Chapter 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my sons, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies but Jacob said to Rebekah his mother behold my brother Esau is a hairy man and I am a smooth man perhaps my father will feel me and I shall be and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing his mother said to him let your curse be on me my son Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. Verse 18. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, 
Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him his wine, he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and the plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? The word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Morning, Whitefields. How are you doing? Good. All right. Make an adjustment here. So we are continuing our study through Genesis. If you have your Bible, please uh, follow along in, in uh, chapters 26 and 27. And if you need a Bible, we have some on the back table over there. If you give a heads up to our ushers, they can get you one. But let's go ahead and pray as we get into God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and we, Lord, we desire to come before you with humble hearts. We desire to come before you with open ears and open hearts, Lord. We want to hear what you would speak to us today through your word. We want it to sink deep in our hearts, Lord, and we want it to, Lord, have that transforming effect on our lives that you desire to have. Lord, we ask that your spirit would fill this place, that you would speak to us, that you give us divine revelation and insight into your word, that we might understand it, that we might understand how it speaks to our lives, Lord, and that we might be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, into the image of your Son, Lord, the the image of perfection. And we ask that you would do that work, that spiritual work in our hearts this morning by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, when Rosemary and I lived in Hungary, you know, we lived there for for 10 years. Well, she lived there for a little bit longer. We didn't watch a lot of TV. We, uh, in the last place we lived, we had a TV and it had cable, but we didn't watch it very often. But there was one show that we, we did uh, start watching after we had kids. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Nanny 911. I don't know if you've heard of this one, right? It's that this British lady, and she goes to these houses where there's like uh, these out-of-control crazy kids who are like setting stuff on fire, and there's like blood everywhere, right? And the nanny goes in, and she tries to help them out and give them some parenting advice, right? So uh, what they do is they take you into these people's homes, and essentially you get to see them at their absolute worst, right? And, uh, you know... Um, as, as parents, I know it's kind of morbid, but there was something about it that made us feel a lot better, right? <laughs> made us feel a lot better about how we were doing as parents. And, and 
aside from that, it was also helpful because we were able to learn from what they were doing wrong and we were able to learn from, you know, this, this nanny who was helping them out. Well, 4,000 years ago, they didn't have reality television, but there was scripture being written, which would take us similarly into people's homes, into their family life, into uh, their minds even, tells us what they're thinking, and, uh, and it would let us see them at their best and at their worst, and it gives us a chance to learn from them to learn what they did right so we can imitate it, and to learn what they did wrong so we can avoid the same folly, the same error, and the same mistakes. That's one of the things I love about studying narratives like in the Old Testament is because it kind of just tells us, hey, here's what happened. And then we kind of got to sort it out and think, well, was that good or was that not good, you know? And as we do that, we're learning vicariously through their lives. We're learning from the good and from the bad. The book of Genesis, right, after in the first few chapters it establishes the foundation for our understanding of of the world that we live in. And then it goes on to tell us the story of the family through whom the Messiah came, right? Through whom Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, will one day come. Now we've been studying this family for many weeks now. The first generation of the family was Abraham and Sarah. And then they had a son, the son of promise. His name was Isaac. And now Isaac has had sons himself. He's had two twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Now this is a believing family. Mom and dad know the Lord. They walk with the Lord. Uh, but, but at the same time, they have a lot of problems, right? Uh, even though they're believers and they've been declared righteous by God because of their faith in his promises, they're still human beings and they still sin. And as we've seen, what happens is that their sin makes their lives very hard, right? Their sin complicates things a lot. But isn't that the case with all of us, right? Isn't that the case in your life and in my life? That it's our sins and the sins of other people around us that complicate our lives and make things hard. And that's where we get this, uh, that's why we have this fundamental biblical understanding of sin. And that is this, that sin is not bad because it's forbidden, right? Some people think that way, that, well, you shouldn't sin because it's forbidden. Well, no, the Bible says sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad, right? Because it destroys, because it's destructive. It causes death and destruction. That's what we see in Genesis. Last week in our study, we met these two twin boys. We met Esau and Jacob for the first time. They were twins. They were born at the same time, but they couldn't have been more different, right? Uh, Esau was a man's man. He was kind of an outdoorsy guy. He loved to hunt and probably fish. He liked to kill it and grill it. He liked to wear boots. He uh, drove a truck. He listens to heavy metal. His name is Esau, which means hairy, right? And He was like born with a full beard, you know. He was like, he came out of the womb as a dude. And he he was probably, I think he was probably the father of the Wookiees. I found a good picture of him up here. He's, uh, you know, he's got his gun. And I imagine that's probably what he looked like. So, although uh, Esau was a cool guy, right? He's kind of like the guy that you want to hang out with. He's fun. He likes to do cool stuff and, you know, have a good time outside. At the same time, though, he was an extremely shallow person. Extremely, right? Like there was nothing going on on a spiritual level in this guy. Um, The Bible tells us that he was a godless and profane man. Those are pretty strong words. And uh, he thought only on a carnal level, right? He only cared about what feels good for me in my body, right? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh with no concern for the things of God and the things of the Spirit. So then you got Jacob, on the other hand, who couldn't have been more different than his brother, right? He's a polar opposite. He is a spiritual guy. He cares about the things of God. He desires the blessing of God. He desires the favor of God on his life. But he's got his own problems, right? He's not a straight shooter. He's not an honest person. He's a shady guy. He's a dodgy guy. He's conniving. He's a trickster. And, uh, and on top of that, he's, he's, you know, the complete opposite of his brother in the fact that he's kind of a wuss, right? He's, he's not exactly a manly guy. Uh, he's a bit on the effeminate side. He likes boy bands and 
wears a lot of pastels, you know. Uh, here, at, here at Whitefields, what we say is, if you could just take Esau and Jacob and combine them, well, that would be, you know, the ideal Christian man. Manly like Esau, loves Jesus like Jacob. That's what we're shooting for, guys, all right? So last week, um, we saw that even before these two boys were born, God spoke to their parents and he told them that he had sovereignly chosen, in spite of the custom of the day, he had sovereignly chosen that the younger of the two boys would be the one who would get the birthright. The older would serve the younger, the younger would get the birthright. Now the birthright meant that he had the right to become the head of the family when his dad would someday die, and that he would get a greater part of the inheritance and he would get a special blessing from his father before his father passed away. Now that blessing is what we see in chapter 27. That's what we're going to study today. In the case of this family, right, the birthright also meant that this person would carry on the family legacy of knowing God and walking with God and getting to be the one from whom this nation comes. And out of that nation, of course, will come the Messiah. So God made this decision before these boys were ever born. He made this decision that Jacob, even though he was younger than Esau, he would be the one who would get the blessing. And, and you know, God doesn't say what his reasoning was for making that decision. But in the end, we do see the wisdom of the decision in the fact that Esau is a godless man who cares nothing about the things of God, whereas Jacob does. And that's, that's really how it is many times, right? God doesn't always tell us why he does the things he does. He doesn't always give us his reasoning. He doesn't always give us an explanation of why he sovereignly chooses to do what he does. But in the end, we always see that he knew exactly what he was doing. That he, the, he had it in control all the time. He knew exactly what he was doing. His wisdom, that his decisions were wise. They were righteous and true. So in our story last week, Jacob and Esau made a, an agreement about this birthright. Esau was hungry one day, Jacob had food, so they made a deal. Jacob would give Esau some food if Esau would give him the birthright. Now this isn't really a fair trade, but Esau agreed to it. They shook on it, it was a done deal. That same birthright which God had already declared belonged to Jacob before he was even born, um, if that wasn't enough, now these brothers make a deal, right? They shake on it. Esau hands over his birthright to Jacob. So what we're going to see in this story is that how exactly does Jacob receive the blessing in spite of the attempt of Esau and Isaac to steal it from him? So please follow along with me if you got your Bible. We're in chapter 26. Notice in verse 1, we're talking about Isaac here. And it says this, in verse 1, there was a famine in the land. Now in our day, uh, we call that a recession. We call that an economic downturn. This is a time when it gets hard to make ends meet, hard, hard to survive, hard to pay your bills. You know, and uh, the last time there was a famine in the land, this is when Abraham left Canaan, where God had called him to be, and he went down to Egypt now, going down to Egypt, nothing good ever happens down there, right? It's not a good thing. Abraham goes down to Egypt to try to get out of this economic hardship in Canaan. And down in Egypt, Abraham, he gives his wife away to the Pharaoh to try to protect himself in his cowardly attempt to protect himself. And that's where he also picks up Hagar, who he later has a child with, and we already studied about that. It was a huge mess. So not only does God speak to Isaac here at the beginning of chapter 26 and confirm to him that he is the heir to the promises of Abraham that God made to Abraham, God also speaks to Isaac and says, hey, I see you're headed down to Egypt. Don't do it. Don't go down there. I don't want you to go to Egypt. In your present difficulty, don't run away from your problems and go down to Egypt like your father Abraham did because you're just going to end up with bigger problems. You know, Egypt in the Bible, over and over, it is a picture, a symbol, a type of the world. Now God is telling Isaac, he's saying, I want you to stay in this place, even though it's difficult for you right now, because this is the place I've called you to be. This is the place where I want to use you and bless you. This is the place where I want you to prosper and have your future. I have a purpose with you being here. He's saying, don't run away to Egypt when things get hard. 
He says, trust me in your difficulties, that if I've called you to be here, then I will take care of you, and I will bless you. So check out verse 6. It says that Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, Gerar is a border town, right? Uh, Isaac, he's on his way to Egypt. God speaks to him and says, don't go to Egypt. So what does Isaac do? He settles down right on the border of Egypt. Now, if Egypt is a picture of the world, then look at what Isaac's doing. He's going right to the edge. He's saying, how far can I go without actually going into Egypt? How close can I get without crossing the line? You know, he doesn't go there completely. He just goes just to the line, just to the border. And this is how many uh, believers live their lives as well, right? Right on the edge of worldliness. Right on the edge of, you know, um, of Egypt. Do you know anybody like this? Probably you do. Or maybe you would even say, well, well, sometimes that's me actually, right? This is a person who, who wants to know what exactly constitutes sin. Because I want to do everything I can up until that point, right? You know what I mean? I want to know the borders. I want to know the parameters so I can get as close to that line as possible without going over. Now what this is, is this is a kind of legalistic mentality, a legalistic kind of lifestyle. Because this is why. It's a heart that is trying to keep the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And that's a really big distinction. You know, the letter of the law is this. It's don't go down to Egypt because God said so. If you follow the letter of the law, then the only thing that matters is doing the absolute minimum. You're like, what's the minimum that I could get away with here? So that I can still say that I'm obeying God. You know, the legalistic person is always looking for loopholes, right? They're always looking for loopholes. They want to say stuff like, well, you know, that's not technically sin. Or they say, you know, uh, the word marijuana or the word pornography is not technically in the Bible. So, you know, it's not technically sin. It's kind of like a loophole. You know, the spirit of the spirit of the law, though, is more than that. The spirit of the law is this, that God loves me and he has a great plan for my life to bless me. So I want to do what his program is for my life. I want to I be in the place where he's called me to be. I want to live for his pleasure and for his glory and for his fame. Not just trying to get away with the bare minimum, which I can still claim that I'm not disobeying. Those are very different attitudes of the heart. You know, you see many people who try to live by the letter of the law. They're trying to do the minimum so they don't get in trouble. But the person who does that, they're failing to understand the spirit of the law, right? That the, the reason why God gives us instruction and direction, the reason why God speaks into our lives is because he loves us deeply and he cares about us. And he has a bigger vision than even we have for our own lives. He has more significant plans for our lives than we even have for our own lives. You know, this was essentially Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. Uh, they strove to keep the letter of the law, but they totally missed the spirit of the law. Uh, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. It's in Luke chapter 11. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb but you neglect justice and the love of God. He says, you ought to have done, you ought, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, this is a perfect example of people keeping the letter of the law and totally missing the spirit of the law, the intent of the law. See, the intent of the law wasn't that you would give God 10% of your spices. I don't think God needs your spices, right? The spirit of the law was not that you would the spirit of law was this, that you would not be selfish. That's the point, right? The spirit of the law was that you would not be selfish, that you would love God with your money, that you would love God more than your money, that you would love God more than your possessions, that you would love other people more than your stuff. That's why God says that people should tithe. Not because he needs your stuff, but because you and I need to learn not to be possessed by our possessions. And we learn that by giving them away. And that's something God wants to teach us, right? We learn that by dedicating our things to the Lord, to the work of the Lord, rather than just hoarding them for ourselves. So in Romans chapter 2, another example of keeping the letter of the law and missing the spirit of the law. 
Paul says this is true in regard to circumcision, and I think we could say it's true in regard to any number of outward things that we do. He says that the letter of the law is, be circumcised. But the spirit of the law, what is the point of circumcision? It's separation, it's dedication to a life of walking with the Lord. And circumcision is just the outward sign of that. So he says that the problem, though, is that there's many people who, who, not, who only obey the letter of the law. They ignore the spirit of the law. He says they're circumcised outwardly, but they're not circumcised in their hearts. They, they have this outward symbol, but the inward reality is just not there. They don't live a life of dedication and separation to the Lord. And that's the point Paul makes throughout the New Testament, is that in Christ, we are set free from the letter of the law, so that we're free to live according to the spirit of the law. That's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians where he says that we have a new covenant in which we live by the spirit and not by the letter of the law because the letter brings death but the spirit brings life. So the point is this. In our story, Isaac is keeping the letter of the law but he's missing the spirit of the law. He's, he's keeping the letter of the law which says, don't go to Egypt. But the spirit of the law is... I have a plan for you. I, have a, I love you. Going down there would be bad for your soul. It would be bad for your family. You know, he says, trust me. Trust my promise to you. That's the spirit of what God's saying. So Isaac settles in Gerar, the closest he can get to Egypt without actually crossing the line. And he, he, um, he, he by obeying the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, this is going to cause a lot of problems in his life because even though he's technically obeying God, his heart is in the wrong place. And so it leads to a lot of problems. And we see that uh, God actually allows difficulty into Isaac's life. He allows frustration into Isaac's life in order to lead him where? Back to Beersheba, back to the place that he started from. The place where he started before he started down to Egypt. The place where God wanted him to be. So here's how it goes. Follow along in the text if you got it. Isaac, first thing he does is he falls into the same sins as his father. Right? What is the first thing he does when he gets into town? There comes Abimelech and Isaac gives away his wife. Hey, isn't that what his dad did? Yeah, that's exactly what his dad did. Instead of trusting in God, Abraham ran to Egypt. Now here's Isaac. Instead of trusting in God, Isaac runs away to Egypt. Instead of trusting God to protect him, Abraham gives away his wife in a cowardly attempt to protect himself. Isaac does the exact same thing. This isn't a generational curse. What is this? This is a pattern of folly and sin which has been cultivated. It's been nurtured and it's been learned. So fathers, I'm speaking to you and I'm telling you, it's so important what kind of culture we cultivate in our homes. And we do that by our actions. Because your wife, your kids, your extended family, they're watching, they're observing. And, and many times what happens to us, and I think many of us experience this, right, is that we just naturally fall into doing the same things that we saw our parents do. You know, and for a lot of us, that kind of freaks us out, right? Many of us, you know, we find ourselves saying the same things to our kids that our parents said to us. And we're like, man, I thought my parents were so dumb, but then I turned into them and it freaks us out. We're like, how did that happen, you know? And for some of us, becoming like our parents is like our worst nightmare because they weren't examples worth following. And that's why what we must do is what, what Isaac needed to do, right? And that is respectfully evaluate his family and ask himself, what are the ways in which I want to imitate my parents? What were the things that they did that were good? And, but also, what are those ways in which I determine to be different from them? What were their shortcomings? Where did they fail? Where did they miss the mark? Where did they do things that made life hard? And we must be intentional and deliberate about the kind of culture that we create in our homes. Because we're setting patterns, we're setting precedents for our kids. So Isaac, right, he gets his wife back and then he goes to work. He starts to work the land and, and he has some success. He makes some money, but he constantly has strife with the people who are living in that land. They, he would dig a well, they'd come around and fill it up with dirt. Man, that's a bummer, right? Uh, so... Um, he just keeps moving out of town, right? It'd be like, you try to dig a well in Longmont. 
Some people come and fill it up and tell you to get lost. So you go to Firestone. Same thing happens. And then finally, we see that he ends up in Platteville. And there, nobody bothers him at all. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's like, hey, that's our space. No, they're like, yeah, go ahead. You can have that. So he ends up there. And then he says, hey, I'm like right down the road from Beersheba where I started. And God speaks to him and says, Beersheba is the place I want you to be. You know, God is sovereign over the circumstances of our lives, and God uses the circumstances of Isaac's life. He uses these difficulties in his life to direct him and guide him to the place he wants him to be. God didn't want Isaac to go to Egypt. He didn't even want Isaac to go to Gerar, but God patiently led him back to Beersheba, where he wants him to be. And it's in Beersheba that God speaks to Isaac again, and he tells him to build an altar. And this is a place where God provides water for Isaac. That's a big deal, especially at that time, for nomadic people. But notice that before Isaac ever digs for water, he builds an altar and he worships the Lord. Some people would say, but, 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 but we can't worship the Lord until we found water. There's work to do. We got to take care of stuff. We can't survive without that. We need to take care of ourselves and then we'll take time to worship the Lord. Once we've found some water, once we've finished our work, we can't live here without that. But here's what Isaac says. He says, no, I've tried to take care of myself already. I tried going down to Egypt. I tried living in Gerar. I tried making a lot of money. And you know what? This time I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God says. I'm going to build an altar before he provides the water for us. He told me to settle down here, and I trust that where he leads us, he's going to provide for us. So before I do anything else, before I get to work, I'm going to worship. You know, it's really easy. Many people will worship God after he has provided for them, after he's come through, after he's answered their prayers. But it takes real faith to worship God before he's met your need, before he's answered your prayer, when you're still wondering, how is this going to work out? God, how are you going to make this happen? God, what's your plan? I don't know. But true faith in God says, God, I will worship you because of who you are, not because of what you've done for me. I will worship you because of who you are. I will worship you before you answer my prayer, before you provide for me. Because my goal isn't to get you to do what I want you to do. My goal is to be led by you. To do what you're doing. To do what you want me to do. Because I see that you're a good God who loves me and who knows a whole lot more than I do. So he finally gets to, uh, to where God wanted him to be all along. And he settles in Beersheba. And Abimelech, the king, he comes from Gerar and he says... Hey, I just wanted to let you know, we see that God is with you and God's blessing you. So we want to make peace with you. Let's end this strife between us. So what is that? That's God confirming through these people that this is the place where he wants Isaac to be. Now this guy Isaac, right? Just looking back over this story, the other stories, the one that's coming up. He's kind of a confusing character, right? I mean, we look at this guy and sometimes he does really great things. And sometimes he does really terrible things. And we wonder, what, where do we place this guy? What category do we put him in, you know? Well, that's kind of like you and I, right? He's just like you and me. Because he's human. And the point of this story is that we shouldn't be amazed with Isaac. But who should we be amazed with? We should be amazed with God. Because this is the deal. We should be amazed with the grace of God towards Isaac. The loving kindness of God towards Isaac. The steadfast love of God towards Isaac. That God is faithful to Isaac and patient with him and lovingly leads him. Lovingly saves his marriage. Lovingly blesses him and provides for him and restores him after he makes a series of bad decisions. God never writes him off. God never gives up on him. And that's the story of your life as well. That's the story of my life as well. This is the good God who loves us, who is faithful to us, who blesses us, even though we don't deserve it. This is the God who loves us with an everlasting love. So notice the last two verses of chapter 26. It tells us that Esau, when he's 40 years old, he went off and married two Hittite girls. Now, why is that important? What does that tell us? Here's what it tells us. It just proves to us all the more, if we weren't sure of it yet, that Esau cares nothing about the things of God. He doesn't care about marrying godly women, which is something which the Bible emphasizes over and over. 
Uh, He doesn't care about walking with the Lord. He doesn't care what his parents think about all this. So in in chapter 27, things start to get really interesting. Here's what happens. Isaac is now an old man. He's well over 100 years old, and he thinks he's going to die. Now the truth is he's got a few more decades in him, you know, but, you know, he's getting older and he thinks he's going to die. He's losing his sight. He's, he says, man, I'm, I'm just going to kick the bucket soon, so I need to get this blessing out of me and on to my firstborn son. Now, uh, he can't move around much anymore, so he tells Esau, he says, son, I love it when you hunt and bring me food, so I want you to go out and I want you to shoot something and I want you to make me some food and bring it to me. And, and when you do, I'm going to bless you and give you that, that birthright blessing. That one, that the deathbed blessing, the one reserved for the firstborn son as part of his birthright. It's a prophetic kind of blessing that the father gives his son and it's honored by God. But, but here's the deal, and this is what we, we know already, right? Is that this birthright, who does this rightly belong to? This rightly belongs to Jacob. This is Jacob's birthright. Right? Isaac knows that. Uh, Esau knows that. They both know it, right? So what are they doing here? What are they, they're trying to pull a fast one on Jacob. They're trying to rip him off. So oftentimes we think of this story, and even in your Bible, sometimes you have a little heading there that tells you what the chapter's about, and it says, Jacob steals Esau's blessing. Well, in reality, if you look at this story better, what this really is, this is really more like the story of how Esau and Isaac teamed up to steal Jacob's blessing, the blessing that rightly belonged to him. And we see that, Also, by virtue of the fact that they're doing this in secret. See, this deathbed blessing, right? This is something that would have been a public affair. You invite family members to this. This is like what we do, you know, baby dedications or baptisms. This is a big deal. You invite people. It's a public ceremony. You want them to be part of this momentous occasion. But here's Isaac and Esau, and they're doing this in secret. Now, that's strange. Why would they be doing that? Well, because they're sinning, right? Because what they're doing is wrong. See, in this family, each parent has their favorite kid. Esau, or Isaac loves Esau because he's cool. And Rebecca loves Jacob. She's, uh, he's her favorite. He's her little boy. It's, he's like 50 years old at this point, but he's her little boy. And he's still, you can see she still kind of bosses him around and he lets her. And, um, you know, Isaac doesn't really think very highly of of Jacob. That's what we see here. He doesn't want him to have the blessing. So dad is saying, Isaac, he's saying, I don't care that God says that this blessing should go to Jacob. I don't care. I don't care that Esau is a total heathen, godless guy. I'm going to give my blessing to him anyway because he's my favorite kid. Jacob's kind of a wuss and I don't want him to have my blessing, you know. And Esau here, he's saying, I don't care about the agreement that I made with Jacob. Who cares? I want this blessing because it means money to me. It means political power. So notice what happens next. Rebecca overhears this conversation. That's probably uh, not too hard to do when you live in a tent, right? It's pretty easy to hear conversations. One time we had a church camping trip and, uh, and this one guy was over there, you know, like telling this other guy in his tent all this like really personal stuff and everybody could hear. We we're like, hey, bro, you know, these walls are not insulated very well. So, you know, a tent is it's pretty easy to overhear stuff. But also we kind of get the impression that Rebecca's kind of a busybody. She's kind of up in everybody's business all the time. So she finds out what they're planning to do and she goes and tells her son. And she says, son, your dad and your brother are planning to sin. So what should we do? Should we pray? Should we go and talk to them and and sort this out? No, 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 no. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to trick them. We're going to trick your blind old dad and your your meathead brother, and we're going to beat them at their own game. Who needs to talk? Who needs to pray? Let's trick them. This blessing belongs to you. We'll respond to their sin by some sin of our own, and that'll make everything better because it always does, right? So... They come up with this elaborate scheme. Rebecca's going to cook some goat, make it taste like wild game. They're going to put the goat hair on Jacob's skin to make him seem hairy like his brother. Jacob's going to wear Esau's stinky hunting clothes. And then Jacob will go in and he's going to lie 
to his blind dad, and he's going to steal that which is rightfully his in the first place. Sounds great, right? There's no way this could backfire. So they do it. Jacob goes in, and he lies to his dad many times, three times. He lies to him, bold-faced lies, claiming to be Esau. And Isaac, he's not buying it at first. He's like, I'm blind, but this just doesn't seem right, you know? And the first red flag for Isaac is this. He says, hey, I just sent you out like five minutes ago to go hunt something. How did you do that so fast? That usually takes a lot longer to hunt something and then prepare it. This is a bit suspicious to me. How'd you do it so quickly? And Jacob says, hey, hallelujah. It was a miracle. He says, the Lord your God granted me success. It was God, man. It was all God. Now, this is a lie. What's he doing? He's using spiritual language to cover up his lie, to add more weight to his sin, right? Have you ever seen that one before, right? I've seen that. Someone is sinning, and they use spiritual words to try to cover their tracks. I had this guy um, I had to deal with in our church in Agar at one time. He was a convicted child molester, right? He had been in prison for molesting teenage boys, and, uh, and he claimed that he had repented of that and that he had been, you know, reformed and all that. So we told him that he could attend our church, but he wasn't allowed to hang out with, you know, that group, you know, teenage boys because of his past. We wanted him to just keep his distance from them and not associate with them for his protection and for obviously mostly for the protection of the kids. But over and over, I would catch this guy hanging out with teenage boys. Right? Like, all the time. He would have them over to his house. This guy was in his late 40s. He's having these boys over to his house, in his room. And I would just kind of catch him doing this stuff all the time, you know, hanging out at the mall. And I confronted him on it. And you know what his response was? Hey, brother, you know, God keeps bringing them to me. God brings them to me. It's a miracle. It's a blessing. I get to minister to them. Isn't that great? I said, no, that's not great at all. And I don't think that's God, you know. It just makes sin all that much more egregious when, when you invoke the name of God to justify your sin. That is blasphemous, right? And that's what Jacob's doing. He's using spiritual talk, evoking the name of God to give more weight to his lie, to his sin. The next red flag for Isaac is the voice. He says, your hands feel like Esau's, which is interesting. I guess Esau felt kind of like a goat. But uh, he says, uh, your hands feel like Esau's, but your voice sounds like Jacob. You see, Esau went through puberty while he was, before he was even born, apparently, you know. But uh, Jacob, he's like 45 years old, and his voice still hasn't dropped. So, so he says, that doesn't sound like Esau's voice, but you feel like Esau. And then he finally says, all right, well, here's the last test. Give me a kiss. So Jacob kisses his father. This is the kiss of betrayal. And Esau smells, or Isaac smells Esau's scent, his body odor on the, on the clothes. And he's finally convinced that, yeah, this is Esau who I'm talking to. So he gives him the blessing. Now, I want you to pay close attention to this blessing, especially those of you who are parents or who are going to be parents or, or even if you're not parents, but you have a mentoring role in the lives of young people. This blessing is something that was, was part of the Hebrew society and they, the father would give it as a declaration of who the child is and where they're going, right? First of all, the blessing started out with an evaluation of who this child is, right? It was, it was valuing them. And Isaac says, Esau, you are a man of the field. He's saying, this is what I see in you, son. He's affirming the strengths that he sees in his child. You know, we need to do that as parents, as, as people who speak in the lives of young people. We need to tell them, this is what I see in you. This is how I see that God has made you special. This is who you are. And this is what's great about you. And, and secondly, the blessing he gives speaks of where they are headed, the direction for their lives. Not only would the dad tell his child what he saw in them, but he would also ta- tell them what he foresaw for their future, what he saw them becoming. So parents, mentors, you know, we have a unique 
opportunity. We have a unique privilege to speak into the lives of, of young people and, uh, and pray for them and bless them, to affirm their strengths and to give them vision and direction for their future. Those are things that our kids need to hear from us. So, so shortly after Isaac blesses Jacob, Esau comes back from hunting and he comes into the room where Isaac is at and he wants to receive the blessing. And Isaac says, wait a second, who are you? I thought I just blessed Isaac. And they both realize what happened. They realize that Jacob beat them at their own game. They were trying to rob Jacob of his blessing, but Jacob stole the blessing that they were trying to steal from him, right? It says that Isaac was so upset that he trembled violently. Esau, this big tough guy, he wept aloud. You know, Esau, he says, my brother, he is rightly named Jacob, which means trickster. He says, my brother, he, he deserves his name. He's a thief. He's a trickster. He's a dodgy guy. He's deceived me two times now. Well, that's not exactly true, is it? Because what really happened is the first time Esau gave his birthright to Isaac in exchange for some stew, and the second time he got beat at his own game. He was trying to be deceitful, and he got out-deceived, right? This would be like if you called the police, and you're like, hey, my buddy stole my money that I was trying to steal from him. You know what I mean? You got no ground to stand on there. Esau's not a victim, and that reminds us that the person who's crying is not always the victim. Our, I see this with our kids sometimes. My daughter will come running into the room and she'll be crying. I'll be like, why are you crying? And she'll just weep. And then, then I'll ask my son, did you hit her? And he's like, no, she whacked me with a sword. And I'm like, why is she crying? I don't know. She probably she doesn't want to get punished. You know what I mean? So not always the person who's crying is the victim. Esau's not a victim here. He just got beat at his own game. So we see that Esau, he's very bitter against Jacob. He hates his guts, and he comforts himself by planning to murder him. He's going to wait till Jacob dies. So Rebecca gets word of this. She tells Jacob, you need to get out of here. Go live with my brother Laban uh, over in Haran. So that's our story. Now let's wrap it up by thinking about a few things we can learn. I got two things I want to talk about, and then we'll be done. First of all, the first thing we got to see in this story is this. God's work must be done God's way. God's work has to be done God's way. Like I said earlier, this blessing, it rightly did belong to Jacob. And these guys are trying to steal it from him. God's will was that Jacob received the blessing. So wasn't J Jacob justified in taking it back? Well, yes, but the way he went about it was all wrong. You see, God's work must be done in God's way. And the end and the means are both important, right? Jacob gets justice here. He gets the blessing which is rightfully his, but the way he goes about it is all wrong. He, the, yeah, he lies and he deceives. You know, God is concerned not just about the end result, but he's concerned about how we do things. In other words, you say, well, God wants me to have a good marriage, so I guess I'm going to have to lie to my wife and, and keep secrets from her in order to keep her happy. Because if she really knew the truth, then that would hurt our marriage. No, man, you've got to do God's work in God's way, in integrity, in truthfulness, in, in humility. You know, you say, well, well, if I bend the rules a little bit, if I cut some corners here and there, then I could really make something happen for the kingdom of God. No, no cutting corners, you know. You got to do God's work in God's way. And if you do that, God's blessing will be upon it. Now, next, and this is the last thing, I want you to check out the family dynamics in this family because they're brutal. They're like off-the-wall brutal. First of all, notice this. Nobody in this family ever talks to each other, right? Mom talks to her favorite son. Dad talks to his favorite son. Mom and dad only talk once, and in that case, mom isn't totally truthful with dad. In what she says, right? Everybody's keeping secrets from each other. When mom finds out that the dad and brother are planning to do something wrong, they don't sit down and talk about it. There's no dialogue. Rather, they just come up with their own scheme to beat them at their own game. Next, notice this also. No one in this family ever repents. And this is really the main thing here. In verse 12, Jacob admits that what he is doing is sin. But he does it anyway, right? You ever meet somebody like that? Has that ever been you? Where you, uh, you say, hey, that thing that you're doing, that's sin. 
and they say, yeah, I know. I feel really bad about it. And you're like, well, are you going to stop doing it? Uh, nah, no, probably not. But you're still going to do it? Yeah, probably twice. I'm still going to do it, yep. See, repentance is more than just admitting that you're doing something wrong. Repentance means turning away from your sin and turning to God for forgiveness and restoration and a new direction. None of these people ever do that. At the end of the story, Isaac and Esau are really upset, right? But are they repenting? No, they're just upset that they lost. When Jacob realizes in verse 12 that what he's doing is wrong, he still does it anyway. Repentance isn't just recognizing your sin, it's turning away from your sin. It's turning back to God. And here's why repentance is so important, and it's life-giving. Because this is why. Repentance opens the door for things to change. It gives an opportunity for God to heal and restore what has been damaged by sin. If people don't repent, nothing changes. Nothing gets better. Things perpetuate. So we look at this dysfunctional behavior in this family. Mom and dad have no relationship whatsoever. They got one son who wants to murder the other one. And instead of dealing with anything, he just runs away. And then he's going to be there for 20 years. Rebecca's never going to see her son again. She's going to die while he's away in Haran. This is not healthy. This is not good. Why? No one is happy in this family. Notice that. Everyone hates life in this family. The only person who is even moderately happy is Esau. And the only reason he's happy is because he's fantasizing about how he's going to murder his brother, right? Very nice. He's the only guy who's happy. So what do we learn from this family? We learn that in our families, we need to cultivate a culture of communication, a culture of repentance. And we need, when we've done something wrong, we don't just stubbornly continue in it, but we turn away and turn to God. We receive grace and forgiveness and new direction. You know, repentance isn't just something that you do once. When you become a Christian, it's something that you need to do daily. It needs to be characteristic of your life, that every time you realize you've missed the mark, every time you repent, and what does that do? It opens the door for God to come in with grace and healing power and enter our lives and our relationships and fix things and do work. So again, just last thing, who's the good guy in this story? Who's our hero? It's not Isaac, certainly not Rebecca, it can't be Jacob. Nobody acts right in this story. So what is the point of this story? What does it teach us? It teaches us this, that even in the midst of this mess that these people created with their sin, God is still on the throne. God is still in charge. He's still in control. His grace is more powerful than our sin. And he's going to bring about his plans and his promises to redeem the world, even through these very flawed people. Even through very flawed people like you and I. And so this story reminds us it's all about God. He's the one who's glorious. He's the one who's worthy of all praise. And therefore, how do we respond to that? Let us be people who do not live according to the letter of the law, trying to do the minimum, but who live according to the spirit of the law by the grace of God, because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your spirit gives life. Lord, we thank you that your spirit, Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, your spirit dwells within us. Your spirit guides us and teaches us and is forming us into the image of Christ, the image of perfection. Lord, if there's anyone here today who who is living this kind of lifestyle, trying to find loopholes, trying to live on the edge and find the parameter, how far can I go without crossing the line? Lord, I pray that they would be born again, that their thinking would be renewed, and that they would understand how good you are, and that they would live according to the spirit of the law. Lord, we just ask for your spirit to work in our lives in this coming week. Lord, work in us, through us, by your grace for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.